Romans chapter 13. I don't know what it is or if it's the same way with you or not, but this time of the year, uh, the last two weeks maybe, I'm always hit with a bout of nostalgia. Uh, New Year's uh, for me is always a reminder of just how relentlessly time marches on. I mean, it's and it is relentless, isn't it? We just moved a couple of weeks ago, and in the process of doing so, we had to, you know, go through a bunch of old boxes and different things. And I'm finding things that my kids gave me when they were little, and things, uh, pictures, old. I mean, it was just like yesterday, and now it's so fast. Uh, time moves on, and that's what time does. And uh, I don't know if you suffer from nostalgia. Uh, the, the word nostalgia means it's a sentimental longing or a wistful affection for the past. Uh, if you dig a little deeper, the word comes from two, two Greek words, one meaning nostos, uh, return, and the other aljos, which means suffering. So nostalgia, then, is the suffering that is caused by an unappeased yearning to return. Because you can't go back, can you? If you want to go back to when your kids were little, you can't because they aren't little anymore and and so forth. So uh, sometimes that almost causes suffering. The poet Dante said, there is no greater sorrow than to recall a happy time when we're miserable. And it is a hard time sometimes as we look back and remember uh, those times. We cannot go back. We cannot return. And that is why we go forward, amen, as we talked about this morning. Uh, now, it is true we don't remember the, the things of the past sometimes necessarily as they were, not if we're just honest with ourselves. Uh, I think of when people look back at the good old days, they do so with a serious filter. I mean, I do it myself. If I think back to my childhood, to the good old days, it was trudging in below zero weather, through the snow to an unheated outhouse. That was the good old days right there for me. In my good old days, if we had to go somewhere, you had to catch a horse that didn't want to be caught and put a harness on him, and then he takes you in an open buggy, unheated, uh, to where you wanted to go. That was my good old days. And now we get into a car with heated seats, we talk about them as the good old days. You know what I'm saying? I mean, we look at the old, we look at the past sometimes, and they weren't that good. We just remember because we have nostalgia. My my uh, child self tells my current self that I'm a big sissy, and he's probably right. Uh, I'm simply saying that it helps me sometimes when we look back and get a proper perspective on nostalgia. Now, it's not. It doesn't help any of us to waste any time or energy in the past. This past week, a chapter closed on our life. 2020 is gone forever. Can I get an amen? Hallelujah. All right. Uh, but 2020 is gone forever. Now, a new, giant new page called 2021 has turned, and we don't know what's on it yet. We're just brand new into it. Uh, I the best for each and every one of you and us as we go forward, but we don't know what 2020 will bring. Uh, but I want to show you some verses tonight here for a couple of minutes. The Bible says in Romans 13, look at verse 11. And that knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep, for now is our salvation nearer than we when we believed. The night is far spent. 
The day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness. Let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk honestly as in the day, not in rioting and drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness, not in strife and envying, but put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ and make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lusts thereof. Father, I pray you'd help us in the next few minutes here that we would hear, hear from your word what you would want for us to have. Help us to be yielding to it in Jesus' name. Amen. message tonight is simply, wake up, wake up. A couple of guys standing on the side of the road, and they were holding a sign that said, the end is near. There they stand while they wait for traffic. It said, the end is near, turn around before it's too late. So one uh, car, car was coming up, and it saw them, it read the sign, and the guy rolled his window down, screamed out, leave us alone, you religious nuts, and he sped on by. From around the curb, they heard a screeching tires and a large splash. And the one guy said to the other, do you think we should just hold up a sign that says bridge is out instead? But the truth is that the end of the world is nearer today than it ever has been. That's what Paul said here. Your salvation is closer than the day you believed. And so the, every day that we live the end of the world or Christ's return is closer, one day closer than it was before. Now, we just celebrated the coming of Jesus at Christmas time, but remember that the risen Christ is coming for a second time. Did you know that for every time that the Bible talks about Jesus or prophesies Jesus' first appearance, it prophesies his second coming eight times? He's coming again. The Bible said he was coming the first time. He did. It says eight times more he's coming a second time, and he will. Long before Arnold Schwarzenegger ever showed up on the scene, Christ was the original, I'll be back, and he will as he promised. In Revelation chapter 22, verse 7, the Bible says, Behold, uh, Jesus said, Behold, I come quickly. And we can say with the apostle John, Even so come, Lord Jesus, chapter 22, verse 20. Now, in today's passage, or tonight's passage that we read here, the Apostle Paul writes with a sense of urgency. He said, uh, basically tells us here we need to be ready for Christ's return at any moment. He said, it is now high time. Uh, we don't have much time left. And by the way, he's writing this 2,000 years ago, or 2,000 years closer than he was at this time. And so he is, uh, he is he's encouraging us it may be tomorrow, but it could be tonight when the Lord Jesus returns. On the coming of Christ, we are to wait with patience. We are to watch with anticipation. We're to work with zeal, and we're to prepare with an urgency. We can sum up tonight's message or tonight's passage that we read here in three commands that Paul gives. Wake up, clean up, and grow up. Those are the three we'll look at this evening. Looking first of all then at when he says, wake up. And now knowing the time that it is high time to awake out of sleep. He uses this analogy or begins kind of with, a, with an alarm clock analogy. And I've said this before, but if you ever get to the place where you hate your job, be thankful you're not an alarm clock. Because an alarm clock, that's a terribly defeating existence. Your boss is mad at you if you do your job right, and he's really mad at you if you do your job wrong, if you're an alarm clock. Uh, I found, uh, and I, I thought about getting this, but then I decided against it. But on Amazon, you can buy a clock. It's called the Clocky. 
and it has big wheels on it. And this is real. It's not a joke. You, you get this. He said it, I guess, on the ground. And when it goes off in the morning, it puts a piercing loud alarm, and then it runs all around the room, and you have to chase it down to turn it off. If you've got a hard time waking up, go to Amazon and buy the clocky. All right? You'll get up. You'll be mad as a hornet, but you'll wake up. Uh, but that's what he uses in verse 11 here. Wake up. Now, would you agree that we're in the last days or the end times? There are three belief systems of when the end times are. I'll give all three of them to you. Position number one. In 1947, Israel became a nation and mankind entered the period known as the last days. Position number two. We're not in the last days yet, but the last days will begin very soon. Position number three, this is the one I happen to hold on to, uh, that the last days started after Jesus' ascension and uh, began with the first century church. In other words, ever since Jesus went to heaven, we've been in the last days. Say, ah, preacher, where do you get that from? Well, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2 is a start. Hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son. They, They were talking about being in the last days, right in the beginning of the early church. No one knows how long this period of time will last, but one doctrine we hold to strongly because the Bible teaches is the imminent return of Jesus Christ. The word imminent, by that it means he could come any time. It's the next thing on his calendar. Nothing else has to happen before before Jesus Christ returns. Uh, It is imminent. The first century Christians, they initially believed that Jesus would return immediately. In Hebrews 10, 25, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as a matter of some is, but exhorting one another so much more as you see the day approaching. They thought it was going to be in their day. James 5, 8, uh, James said, Be ye also patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. He thought it was close then. 1 Peter 4, 7, But the end of all things is at hand. Be ye therefore sober, and watch unto prayer. Now, when Jesus did not return, uh, and hasn't all these years, some grew complacent. Some lost their sense of urgency. In fact, turn to 2 Peter chapter 3, if you would. 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter, if you want to know where it's found, it's immediately after 1 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 3, in verse number 3, this is a a common sentiment even today. Uh, Peter is talking about the last days, and he's talking of some who question the return of Christ. Verse 3, knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers, walking after their own lusts, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all these things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. Haven't you ever heard that? Ah, Christians have been saying for years that Jesus was coming back. I remember when I, was, when I was 14 years old, I was listening to an evangelist, Jack Mount, and he was preaching, and uh, this was in 19, before, in the early 90s, somewhere in there, and, uh, and I was listening to him preach, and he was just going on and on about how he said, we'll never see the year 2000, he had Bible proof, I will never see the year 2000, Jesus is going to return before that, and I remember thinking, because I was a really spiritual person. I was, man, I hope I can get married and have kids before he comes. It would be nice to have a family and all that. But uh, that, that was the promise then. People have been saying it for years. Yes, they have. That doesn't change it. He said he's coming. He's coming. 
We don't know when that is. But this is a common sentiment that people say, where's the promise of his coming? Rather than ask, where's the promise of his coming? We ought to, uh, instead of saying, when will he come again? We ought to say, uh, uh, not, instead of where is the promise, we should be saying, when will he come again? Instead of pessimism, we ought to have optimism. Now, scoffers in verse 4 say, all things continue as they always did. Everything does not continue endlessly from creation. There has been great changes in the history of the world. So they're not right in the first place in their, uh, in their premise there anyway. History is not circular. History is linear. It, will have, it has a beginning and it will have an end. And explains more in verses 8 and 9 still in first peter or second peter 3 but beloved be not ignorant of this one thing that one day is with the lord as a thousand years and a thousand years is as one day have you ever heard that before the lord is not slack concerning his promises as some men count slackness but is long suffering to us we're not willing that any should perish but that all should come to repentance so the lord the bible says that it is to the lord one day is as a thousand years. The story goes that a man comes to God and he says, what is a thousand years to you? And God said, it's just like a second. And the man said, what is a million dollars like to you? And he says, just, just a penny. And the man says, God, could I, have, could I have a penny? And God says, sure, just a second. All right, think about it. Uh, Peter says that to God, a thousand years are like a day. This illustrates the eternality of God. We consider our lives to be so important. But just think about this for a second. If we take that math, then a, uh, if, if this is to be taken literally, then one hour would be 41 and a half years. That means if you live to be 80 years old, it's just under two hours in the eyes of God. It also means that uh, by the, if we're delaying, if we're talking about him delaying the second coming, we have to remember that Jesus just ascended two days ago in this math. Now, I'm not saying that we're supposed to take this literally, but the point that I'm saying is God's view of time is, is much different than our view. And just because Jesus hasn't returned yet does not at all slacken the promise of that he's going to come again. Uh, it's just that we, especially we Americans, we're not accustomed to waiting. <laughs> We don't like waiting. We don't like waiting for anything uh, or anyone, including God. But the truth is, men have been waiting on God all through history. Noah waited for a hundred, over a hundred years for the flood to come. Abraham and Sarah waited 25 years for their promised son to be born. Abraham didn't even possess the promised land in his lifetime. His descendants waited for more than 400 years before they got into the promised land. Now, it's obvious that even the disciples were not excited about waiting. There are more questions in the Bible that they gave Jesus about the second coming than I think any other subject. They're constantly asking Jesus about the second. When are you going to come again? When is the kingdom going to be set up? I think of the time Lazarus was dying and the sisters sent for Jesus and he delayed two days in John 11. Both Martha and Mary, uh, both of them told Jesus, you're too late, Jesus, you're too late. But he was right on time. God's promises never come too late. And the Bible says here, the Lord is not slack or slow in, in keeping his promises. Secondly, not only does Paul tell us to wake up, he tells us to clean up. Verse number 12, the Bible says to cast off the works of darkness. Now, 
we don't want to be found dirty when Christ returns, do we? We need to clean up. Uh, Paul uses the night and day not to illustrate periods of time, but good and evil. He describes the waiting period as night. Uh, look at, again at verse number 12. We're back in, uh, excuse me, I lost my place here just for a second. Romans 13. If you want to go back to Romans 13, and then we're looking at verse number 12. The Bible says, The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness, and let us put on the armor of light. So he's using day and night to uh, both uh, speak about time and also about good and evil. He uses the phrase armor of light, suggesting there's a protection in living godly lives. We ought to live godly lives. There's a protection in that. In verse 13, he gives six examples of good of the type of behavior to avoid. Look what he says in verse 13, let us walk honestly as in the day, not in rioting and drunkenness and chambering and wantonness and strife and envying. Really quickly, we'll, we'll break these down. Rioting is to rebel or to carouse. I looked up the uh, Bible, the, the definition of the original word. You want to hear it? Sometimes it gives lengthy definitions. A nocturnal procession of half-drunken fellows who after supper parade through the streets with torches and music in honor of some deity, a generally drinking parties extending late till late at night and indulge in, in revelry. So that's uh, rioting. You, got any, you think we got any rioters today? Absolutely. We have them literally and in this uh, uh, definition here too. Popular science has called the millennial generation the world's hardest partying generation. But we are called to live godly in this present world. Then he says drunkenness. Drunkenness, the original word for drunkenness, uh, means drunkenness. Okay, We can all get our heads around that one, right? Pretty simple explanation. Drunkenness, we're to avoid it. Now, the Centers for Disease Control tell us that nearly 51% of American adults are regular drinkers. More than 7% of the adult American population have a legitimate drinking problem. One in four young adults today binge drink regularly. 42% of college students report binge drinking on a regular basis. 100,000 people die every year from alcohol-related causes. I think it's interesting that we have a virus who kills, and I'm not trying to put down the death of any people, but a virus that takes out uh, far less people than alcoholism ever did, and they take that on by taking away our freedoms for it, but alcoholism is just allowed to remain. We have, a, we have, a, uh, we have a, a leadership that has a warped sense of priorities. And I tell you this because the devil lies to you. He puts an allure on sin. Uh, he never advertises the consequences. The entire program of Satan is a brochure program. It's promises. It's, uh, it promises great fun. The brochure is glossy. It's exciting. It has great pictures in it. It's full of pretty, smiling, young, happy people. It doesn't show you the results of that sin. Uh, in the back of your mind, you might think, oh, yes, I know there's casualties in involving in this, but it won't be me. That's the lie the devil sells. You're different. He never advertises the broken homes, the lives that come along with it. He never advertises Skid Row or the homeless shelter or the prisons full of people who are tied up in these things. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 1, wine is a mocker, strong drink is raging, and whosoever is deceived thereby is not wise. The sad fact is that people all the time risk their future 
for immediate gratification. In 1982, ABC Evening News showcased an unusual, what they called modern art. It was a chair, and in front of you, you could sit in the chair, and in front of the chair was a loaded shotgun pointing right at you, and it was affixed to a timing device that was set that it would go off in some random moment before the year 2000. Now, this was in 1982, so sometime in the next 18 years, randomly, that shotgun will go off. And people waited in line for blocks to sit in that chair. They would buy a certain amount of time, 10 minutes or 15 minutes, and they would sit in that chair, knowing it could go off, but not thinking it would go off in their 10-minute period. Now, we think that's crazy, and it is, uh, but yet uh, a lot of people who wouldn't dream of sitting in that chair live their lives gambling that they'll get away with their sin. And we're not much different than the fools who would sit in that chair. Uh, the People ignore the risk until it destroys them. Listen, the world offers nothing but heartache, and drunkenness is not the answer, and that's why Paul names it here. People who drown their sorrows should know that sorrow knows how to swim, so avoid this sin of drunkenness. And then it says chambering. This is adultery or cohabitation. We call it today uh, the modern word for chambering today is shacking up. That's another terminology for it. That's what this means, essentially, living in sin, living in adultery. And this is a huge problem in our society because there's a breakdown of marriage in our society today, and that results in all sorts of ills. Uh, just simply say to this, do things God's way. Man, if you do things God's way, it's so much simpler, isn't it? If we just do things God's way. And then he says wantonness. Wantonness is not a word we use much, but it means unbridled lust, uh, excess, shamelessness, insolence. Uh, talking here about, uh, in fact, it's translated in the Bible six times as lasciviousness, and it's uh, translated once as filthy. Talking here about living after the flesh, living like animals, doing whatever feels good, having a, if it feels good, do it type of mentality. Wantonness. And then he names strife. Strife is contention, disputing. It's the same word that is used in 1 Corinthians 3, 3, for ye yet carnal, for whereas there is among you envying and strife and divisions, are ye not carnal and walk as men? We're living in a society today that is defined by strife, and it leaks into our churches as well. Uh, we are, we, strife is, man, it's what makes up our news every night. Uh, there are riots and movements that inspire hate and strife, and not only in society and churches as well. Proverbs chapter 28, verse 25. He that is of a proud heart stirreth up strife. There it is. There's the cause behind strife, a proud heart. But he that putteth his trust in the Lord shall be made fat. Amen. The Bible says in several places that it's a good thing to be fat. Amen? It's good. Uh, use, uh, use your uh, uh, context when you look at that. We need to be peacemakers, not strife causers. And then finally, envying. This is a jealous uh, jealousy or a zealous rivalry. I find this interesting, this idea of zeal, because the same word is used to describe Jesus in the temple in John 2.17. And his disciples remember that it was written, 
The zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. Jesus had a zeal for all things righteous. Today, we have a zeal towards all things wickedness. But in this passage, Paul says, let us walk honestly as in the day. So how do we clean up when it's so easy to return to our old sin? We need to, uh, you know, we can all identify with Paul when he says, for I know that is in me, as in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. It's hard to clean up in and of ourselves. Uh, but we are to say with Paul, uh, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord, so then with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. Our only hope to cleaning up is to put our faith and trust in the Savior and living out the word of God in our life. So Paul says, wake up. He says, clean up, and that leads us to part three here, which is grow up. Look at verse 14. But put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ and make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lusts thereof. Get rid of the old clothes. Put on new clothing appropriate to our standing as followers of Christ. This is not talking about forcing ourselves into new habits. Paul is saying here to clothe ourselves with the Lord Jesus himself. To stop thinking about how to gratify all of our fleshly desires. Listen, if we want to follow Christ truly, we need to put him first in our life. Our desires for then other things, our fleshly things, they will diminish as we put Christ first. The goal is not to live a perfect sin-free life. The goal is to become more like Christ. Stop trying harder, start trusting more. Make not provision for the flesh, he says. Now, he's not warning us here, by the way, about food and shelter for the body. These are necessities. 1 Timothy 6, 8 tells us that. Uh, neglecting these things don't make you more righteous, even though some religions go down that route. Neglecting things that are needful to us are not sinful. Uh, he's warning against the lusts of the flesh. Lust leads to sin. Sin leads to death. James chapter 1, verse 14 and 15. So make no provision for the flesh. Do not provide what is necessary for sin to exist in our lives. That's what that uh, statement means, to make no provision for the flesh. Basically, making provision for the flesh is like setting the table for sin. You're getting it all ready. Oh, I'm not going to do it, but I'll just set the table for it. Making provision for the flesh. We have to use our heads when it comes to this. Give no thought to sin. Focus on spiritual things. Colossians 3, 2, the Bible says, Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. Uh, if we're to avoid sin, we don't allow our minds to dwell on sinful things. And then what it really is uh, specifically saying is not to provide an opportunity for sin. Look, we know there are certain places we should avoid. But we go there anyway. Make no provision for the flesh. Uh, you, you know you better than anybody else but God knows you. You know areas, uh, thought patterns, television shows, music, whatever area of your life, you know where your weaknesses lie. So be smart and don't make provision for the flesh. I mean, if you have suffered in the past with alcoholism, don't buy a Coke at a bar. That makes sense, doesn't it? Nothing wrong with drinking a Coke. Make not provision for the flesh. I'm just saying we need to use our heads as we live for the Lord. How often do we fall into sin because we really essentially plan for it? Put ourselves in the place for it. 
we cannot give ourselves opportunities to sin. Surrounding ourselves with the right people helps too. 1 Corinthians 15, 33. Be not deceived. Evil communications corrupt good manners. Avoid situations in which you'll be, uh, be vulnerable to temptation. In Proverbs chapter 5, the wise man talks to his son about the strange woman. Now, question, if you remember, did he tell, her not, did he tell his son not to go into her house? Do you remember when he talks about the strange woman? Let me read you the verse. Proverbs 5, 8. Remove thy way far from her, and come not nigh to the door of her house. Now, don't even go to the neighborhood. Get out of, the, get out of her completely. Get away from there. Joseph did. He left his coat and booked out of there when he was faced with temptation like that. And so he was serious about the matter. If we're going to avoid sin, we have to limit the opportunities to sin. You know you. Take the appropriate steps. Take action steps. As long as we are living in the flesh, we'll have the ability, uh, to, we'll have more probability to sin. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus wants to join your daily decision-making processes. Jesus needs to be a part of that. Every part of our life, we're talking about that in discipleship tonight. Every part of our life, God wants to be in on it. We need to have him, uh, that's putting on the Lord Jesus Christ. By the way you live, you reveal whether he is the Lord of all or he is not the Lord at all of your life. He's going to be one or the other, the Lord of all or not the Lord at all. The 3rd United States Infantry Regiment, another, another name for that is the Old Guard, it's the oldest active duty regiment of the army. It's been in place since 1784. A lone sentinel marches 21 steps forward, 21 steps back, across the tomb of the unknown soldier. Every 30 minutes, he's replaced with a new sentinel. Every day since 1930, 24 hours a day, 365 days a year, regardless of weather, a guard has marched those steps. Everyone spends, or each guard spends five hours a day preparing for this sacred duty. An old guard has to commit two years of his life to guard this tomb. He lives in barracks under the tomb. He will not drink alcohol on duty or off duty for every day that he lives for the rest of his life. He cannot disgrace the uniform or that tomb in any way. In the first six months, he cannot talk to anyone outside his unit, watch television, uh, because he's preparing. All he has to do is to study the lives of the 175 notable people that are laid to rest in Arlington National Cemetery. After two years of service, each guard receives a wreath pin to wear on his lapel, signifying that he paid that service. Today, only 400 Americans wear that pin. And I wonder what it might be like if we committed our life to Christ the way they commit to honoring those, and, and I think it's right that they do. But how would it be if we committed our life that much to the Lord Jesus Christ? Imagine if we swore off all bad habits, speech, imagine if we studied scripture for hours a day to prepare for our duty. What if the cross was more than just a piece of jewelry, but a sign of the highest honor, one that demanded faithfulness to the one who sent his son? God help us tonight to wake up, clean up, and grow up. We need his help to do it. 
we, we cannot do it on our own. That's why we have to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Just when we think we have the Christian life all figured out, that's when we fall into temptation again. And that's what Paul's warning against in this passage tonight. A great goal for your new year as we started out is wake up, clean up, grow up. Let's work on it together. Father, we thank you for this passage.